joining me on Words on a Wire. I'm Daniel Chacon, and today we're going to be talking to first-time novelist Ted O'Connell, and the name of his novel is K, simply K, a novel. K as in the letter K, not as in somebody named K, but as in the letter K. Sound a little Kafkaesque? Well, stick around and you'll find out why. Winner of the Tobias Wolf Award in Fiction, Ted O'Connell is a writer and musician whose creative products have been featured in literary magazines, uh, quite a few of them, some of the best in the country. Uh, He's also been... uh, (laughs) His work has appeared in taverns, that is, bars and music halls throughout the country, because he is a mandolin player. Did I ever tell you my grandfather played the mandolin? I think maybe that's why I feel such affection for you, Ted. He plays the (laughs) mandolin with the Prozac Mountain Boys uh, and guitar. He also writes uh, and sings, and also with Scarlet Locomotive. Uh, He was twice a visiting professor in China, Originally from Chicago, Ted currently lives in Bellingham, Washington with his wife and daughter. Ted, welcome to Words on a Wire. Beautiful to be here, Daniel. I really appreciate it. And I have to apologize because I've been recording at home for the last several months, and the very first show I recorded at home was with you, but I somehow made a really grave errors, and so we have to do this show again. So thank you for your patience and joining us again. I'm happy to be the, the guinea pig, better me, uh, an old friend than, than somebody else, right? Yeah, I guess. That's a good way of looking at it. Thank you. And and so we are here to talk about your first novel, your first book, uh, K. It's called K, like, like the letter K, a novel. Tell us a little bit about this book, how it came about. Well, as you mentioned, I taught in China for two years, um, actually kind of a year and a half, and I was there for two stints. And um, I just have to say, when I lived in China, I couldn't stop thinking of Kafka. Um, every kind of every time I saw a locked door or a weird hallway or a bureaucrat that was kind of like barking at me uh, seemingly unnecessarily, I thought about Franz Kafka and his work all the time. And um, I also, in class, would sometimes be saying things that were maybe a little bit on the edge of what I was supposed to say and not supposed to say. And I started to imagine, like, what would it be like if I you know, said the wrong thing. What if I, you know, really made a mistake? And um, the the truth is I probably just would have been, you know, sent back (laughs) home on the first plane, but that doesn't make for a very interesting novel. So I imagine like, what would it be like um, if a professor in China, you know, did get thrown in prison for, you know, reasons that seemed to us anyway unjustified. You mean for saying the wrong things in class and encouraging perhaps a little bit of uh, rebellion among the students? Yeah. Yeah. And specifically, it was this um, quote by um, James Baldwin, that kind of famous quote, something like, um, you know, I, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. And I thought, oh, that's a cool thing to have my students say. That's a fun little <laughs> statement because I was late for class. And I wasn't prepared. And, and I was like, oh, I love that. You know, I love that line. I Googled it and found it. And, you know, I had the students, you know, saying this statement, which they seem to like. And about halfway through the lesson, 
spontaneously, this one young lady replaced the word America with China. She said, I love China more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. I was like, no, oh my that. God. That and, must... another <laughs> and another, and I was like, this could be, uh, this could be troublesome. I better uh, go back to the boring lessons. Did you, did you get paranoid at all? Like thinking you were being watched or, or thinking that there was uh, somehow an observer? Um, one time when I Googled, I tried to Google for something on the Mormon church or the LDS church for some reason for a, um, uh, a story I was working on and like something kind of weird happened with my internet then it didn't show up. And then, um, but n- not really. I mean, there, there were class monitors in each class, which were, you know, really, really friendly, top notch, you know, amazing students who did have a responsibility to the party if something went wrong. Um, but even this is 2010, 2012, the surveillance levels then were much lower than they are now. I mean, I think I haven't talked to people who are teaching there right now, but certainly things there's way more like cameras everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, nah, the, the truth is I didn't feel too, I didn't feel too watched. Well, you must have, uh, I, I, I know this is going to sound like a weird comparison, but I can't help but compare your experience to, to Einstein Whereas Einstein uh, would imagine himself in uh, 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 chasing after a beam of light uh, at the speed of light. What would it be like? Would light be stationary? And he thought about this and imagined it for many, many years before he found the equation that would actually (laughs) turn out to be special relativity. And I'm wondering... Did you imagine this novel, the scenario, uh, get into your character, whose, whose name is Kaufman, K, the professor in China who gets arrested for inciting uh, uh, rebellion among his students? Did you, did you imagine this novel before you started writing, or did you just start writing uh, and, and without going through that imaginative, imagination period? Um, thanks for the comparison to Einstein. I get that a lot yeah, actually. <laughs> um, when I can't put my socks on the right way. Um, uh, I think to answer your question, uh, in the most honest, accurate way, it's kind of both. I have, I have the cute little spiral flowery notebook that I, you know, was using at the time that I started working on the novel because I wrote everything longhand and I loved all these cool notebooks I could get in the uh, drugstores in China. They were just beautiful, gorgeous. They were really, really pretty. And I have this fetish for notebooks. And I was on a regular writing routine. And I know I sat down for my, you know, kind of um, my demanded, self-demanded free writing one day. And in the notebook where where it all started, it does have kind of a an idea. It starts with an idea. It's like, oh, what if I wrote a story? I used the word story. I didn't use the word novel what if I wrote a story about a guy, a professor who crosses a line in China and gets, you know, hauled into prison. And then there's space in the notebook. And then I, then I wrote a first line and that first line didn't end up being the first line of the novel, but it was a line that I used later, maybe mm-hmm. on like page six or something like that. Um, so then it was like, it was an idea kind of from the outside. And then I just went boom into the interior of like, oh, here's the guy he's in prison. This is the first line. Um, so from that point, then it was more imaginative and more kind of like, I don't know where this is going, you right. know, just kind of feel my way blindly. Did you, did you, um, did you like daydream about it? Like, you know, lay on a couch or sit in a park or even lay in bed, imagining 
what what was happening to Professor Kaufman? Uh, yeah, kind of. I think my process is like I write, I write, and I wander, and I daydream while I'm writing, and then this almost never fails to happen. I get up from like a long writing session, like two or three hours, and I'm like, okay, I got time to go make some coffee. It's time to go for a walk, or you know, mm-hmm. take my daughter to you know wherever. And it's uh, it often happens that as I'm getting up and leaving, I'll daydream then and go, oh crap, wait, here's another idea, and I'll <laughs> go back and write down that idea. So sometimes it's like a it's like there's just weird like um you know uh, tether or something <laughs> to right, the work. Right. I'll try to get away from it, and it'll pull me back. You know, um, you are so yeah. you are in Beijing, which is a completely different city from Bellingham, Washington, where you live. Not only in terms of you know it's it's <laughs> yeah. immense size, but just culturally and and technologically, and and just so many things going on in Beijing that I imagine, and also the not to mention the language uh, difference. I know you acquired a lot of Chinese while you were there, but but it would still nonetheless. Uh, 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 opportunity to be misunderstood or opportunity not to be able to, to have to work harder to get yourself understood or to understand what others are saying. And so I imagine that pushes you deeper and deeper into self. And I'm wondering, as you went deeper into self, did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy the imagination that came with that falling deeper and deeper into, uh, uh, away from what is it in, in the exterior? Yeah, I mean for sure. The the bulk of the first draft of the of this novel was written in a five week period over the Chinese New Year. My wife and daughter had gone back to the States to tend to a loved one, so I was kinda lonely because there was no um it was holiday, it was no there was no teaching going on. They have a really long break at that time. Uh so I was very much kind of alone in the apartment. And so there was that kind of aloneness that Eugene Kaufman experiences. So that's certainly part of the, uh, part of the process. And yeah, I think when you're uh, literally a foreigner in another country, I think, I think it's good for whatever those neurons are that are that make you write. Um, <laughs> I think you do see the world in a different way. It's kind of like a drug, you know, in a sense that you sort of see things differently. Right. Right. When you, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not the first person to say that, that, that traveling and being an expat, not that I was really an expat, I was more like an extended tourist, to be honest. Right. Um, but living in another country, I think it's, it's good for the mind. Absolutely. And let me ask you this. I don't know if, I, I think if I asked this question to a lot of people, it would make a lot of sense, but I think it makes sense to you. Did you ever, were you ever like so intently writing, I mean, just completely in the zone and then you go for one of those walks and suddenly the city is giving you creative fodder for your next writing section? Yeah, exactly. I mean, totally. Um, just like you, and, and the thing is I could not have written this book based solely on memory, like, um, from retrospect, like if I had to write about my childhood or something, you know, in summers in Wisconsin, I, you know, I have enough <laughs> there that I can work with it. But, um, anything that's, if there's anything good in that book, uh, most of it is, is, is stuff that I wrote while I was there because I was just right, you know, um, I really had my mm, antennae, you know, like there working and yeah, I'd go, I'd wander and I'd see an image and I'd, you know, think about it. I might tap out on my little, didn't have a cell phone, then I had like a little iPod kind of thing, uh-huh. and I'd tap notes. Um, yeah, a lot of wandering and dreaming. 
Yeah, I imagine, you know, when we're focused on something, I think this is just how the brain works when we're really intently focused on on something that the landscape tends to reveal things that encourage and reinforce our our uh, our our focus. So I imagine there were experiences that you would see something and they go, that's it. That's what I need in my novel. Well, here's an example. <laughs> something just popped in my head. Okay, so um, we we butcher each other's languages big time, right? So I, you know, I did my best to learn as much Chinese as I could for the time, and and I would get words wrong, and people laugh at me, and you know, it's a, it's a hard word to understand. And in turn, that you know, Chinese will butcher English too. Like so, for example, you see lots of misspellings, and you can Google any kind of you know funny Chinese sign, you'll see all kinds of things, right? Oh yeah, I um, remember. Like, I remember like, one that I saw in a bar. It says in the bathroom door, it says no bowels. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they're funny, right? And there's one like uh, I remember seeing like Winnie the Hoop, H O O P, like for you know um, you see the big honey bear like uh-huh. a, um, on a towel, Winnie the Hoop, and then I saw one guy wearing a black satin jacket that said Pally Boy, and it was with the Playboy Bunny. <laughs> and I knew that I'd been writing this scene where um, the secret police follows Kaufman. And they're hot on his trail, and it's it's a little bit noir like, you know. But I didn't want it to be like too noir like, so I was googling like stories, of course, with my VPN, googling stories about the secret police in China. And I this picture of this guy who was an act, actual secret police man member, and he was wearing this black mask and a black hat, and it, he, it just looks so typical and noir. I'm like, I can't use that man. It's just like <laughs> that's just too cheesy. Like, and, and then I was like, I got it. I'll put that guy. I'll give him a pally boy jacket. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you know, I remember it was in the subway, the guy with the pally boy jacket. Wow, you know, that's great. Of, you know, you take something that's sort of trite and, you know, typical and add pally boy. Walk us through the moment you started it all the way until you knew you had uh, uh, a publishable draft. Gosh, okay, so a gush of creative energy, a five-week period in 2013, in um, January and February. And and then I, you know, went back to the States and had a job and, you know, was working full-time and working on other projects. So then, you know, off and on, um, probably, you know, three years after that, I felt pretty confident that I had something good um, about two years maybe after that. So what, 15, 16? No, more like 16, 17. But I didn't hear anything from Santa Fe Writers Project until December of 2018. So it took me a while and there were, you know, a fair amount of rejections in there like like it is for most writers, unless your name is Chang Wei Li. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think he gets rejected anymore. He Just for uh, background, Chang Wei Li is a fantastic fiction writer, Korean-American fiction writer from New York that we went to grad school with. Uh, Ted and I went to grad school at the University of Oregon for our MFA, and Chang Wei was, uh, was there and certainly has become one of the most successful writers uh, in the world today. Yeah. So that guy that you went to high school with that made it to the NBA, he's like, he's, he's our... He's our NBA player. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did it take uh, you to write it, though? Okay, well, I mean, so it's, it's a hard answer, the question to answer. I guess I would say, like, com- when did I have that thing completed? 2017, 2016, you know, so three, four years for me. It's, you know, I'm, I'm slow. Um, I'm in two bands, actually three. or was in three bands until the pandemic, the pandemic started. So, um that's, I guess, the best answer I can give, you know, a gush of creative output, like for five weeks and then 
a good draft after maybe a year. I'd probably let it go for about a year after that. So, you know, but all told from, from day one to publication was, I think if you do the math, it's like seven years, which is longer than I'd like it to be, but that's just what it is. That's that, that sounds about right though, for a novel, I think for a literary novel, unless you're one of those writers that just, you know, pounds out pop fiction. Even if we look at Chang Ray, I think he might come out with a book every five to 10 years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so when you were ready for it, who tell us about, uh, the point from I'm really interested in this because, you know, I know I've known you for a long time and I know that you have been writing all this time before China. You were writing collections of stories. You were writing novels. Uh, so when you when you got it done, when you when you said, OK, this is a good book. Uh, tell us about the process of going from that point to getting it published. You mentioned rejections a little while ago. Maybe you can go a little bit more into that because I think a lot of writers have a book and they, they're a little clueless, you know, who knew can blame them on, on what to do next. Yeah. Okay. So I think um, like most people, I, you know, I tried to get an agent first and, you know, I think you get, it's, hard whether to put much stock in what, what agents tell you, but I'm, I mean, I think you kind of get a sense from the kind of notes you get back. Um, you know, because a lot of the, a lot of the notes I got back from agents were actually really encouraging. Like this is a fantastic novel, but, or this is like, why well, you're, you're a really, really good writer, but so that, that for whatever it's worth. Um, and maybe that's just, you know, my lame self-esteem, but that, that helps you feel a little bit like, okay, well, this is not the place in the marketplace. Um, and then, you know, you go to ADWP and you look for small presses and, um, you know, I think I submitted it to two or three, um, small presses kind of forgot about Santa Fe writers project, um, for a, a while, didn't know much about them. And it turns out they have a 20 year history of like really, really good track record and, you know, amazing list, really, really, really strong list of writers there. Um, but I think if I were to do some numbers, I probably pitched 20, to 30 agents and probably heard, you know, heard nice things from like eight of them or something like that. Um, and decided that's, you know, it's not the end all be all. I'll try some small presses and, um, you know, I think I submitted to four of those places or something and, and, you know, got some good news in uh, December of 2018 made for a nice Christmas. And Santa Fe Writers Project, which published this book is a fantastic press and they clearly love this novel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Andrew Gifford is the publisher there, and um, I think he said something in his first note, like, you know, that he called it a, a, a page turner, which is, you know, weird, because I remember going back to our Oregon days, I think one of the things I learned from you is, like, not to be afraid of plot. You know, I remember you used to walk around the campus with a John Grisham novel on your arm being like, I'm learning plot from this guy, and I don't <laughs> care if you think he's not a good writer. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. I think I was afraid of plot for a few years. I was, you know, trying to be hip, trying to be MFA, that, you know, trying to be that metafiction guy or whatever it was I was trying to be. And I was like, one day I looked at all the writing that I liked and I was like, you know, Carver's plots are pretty great. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Moves, plots are pretty great. I like plot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Chang Ray Lee's plots are pretty amazing. You know, I think what, what yeah. uh, you know, what it is is to remember where plot comes in terms of the shape of the book and and i can't help but think of the uh the equation that ehud Havzalet, um, <laughs> our, our, Havzalet, yeah. Havzalet, sorry, uh, 
gave us, uh, and that is P equals CH over T, which is plot equals character over time. And I think in yeah. popular fiction like John Grisham, one of the things I learned by reading John Grisham is what a horrible writer he is. And he is a horrible writer, but he's a great plotter. He knows how to plot. However, his characters are dragged through the plot and they seem to have no will of their own because they have to submit to the plot. Whereas what Ehud taught us about literary fiction is that plot equals character over time. You put the character in a situation and based on that character's need, that character's yearning, uh, that's what the plot's going to end up being. And, you know, something you said um, sort of prods me to, to circle back to your question earlier about because um, I want to relate it to that the process of publication, because I do recall that, you know, after some rejections from these agents, and again, not that you let agents completely dictate how you're going to write your book, but you look at yourself, you look at the own work. I, I, I spotted what I thought was kind of a flaw in the voice. I felt like the voice in my narrator, it's a first person narration. So it's like pretty key for that voice to be authentic. I felt like my, the voice was off in places that it wasn't authentic. And um, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty details about that, but it's just like, it, it's, it's a sense of authenticity and genuineness that you get. And you're like, no, it sounds, it sounds false. It just doesn't ring quite true. Mm-hmm. So I do, I mean, I think it was essentially like, I need, I need to make this guy sound more like a guy from, um, who grew up in Chicago in the eighties, you know, cause that's closer to my, my bio. So I made him more like myself and less like this imagined person that I had out there. And that was the key. So in other words, that's voice. It's like this element of fiction, right? But it's related and, you know, it's related to plot in the sense like what's happening to this guy. But it's, you know, like you said, plot equals character over time. And if that character isn't authentic over time, then you're screwed. You know, you're not going to, you know, do your best work. So that to me was a pretty big key. And once I got that kind of figured out, I started feeling more confident about it. So that was probably what, like five years after I started the Uh, thing. Yeah. And, um, when you know the 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 uh, equation that Ehud gave us, plot P equals C H over T. Uh, to me, I had to add uh, on the C H times Y, which is yearning, because I think that without <clears throat> character yearning, there's no story. It's not just uh, this person's characteristics are going to lead to a plot, you know, what they're like, how they interact with other people, but their desire, it's their desire that's going to, that's going to drive them. And, you know, uh, and I know, you know, that, um, I know, you know, that, you know, character desire, character need is, is fundamental to fiction. And I'm wondering, um, if you knew, if you were able to articulate or just maybe sense the need of your character, Professor Kaufman. So that was definitely a process of discovery. Um, You know, I think, you know, I just got done teaching um, George Saunders puppy, beautiful, beautiful story. And I kind of realized as I was teaching it to my students, that like, okay, there's, there's surface level plot. And then there's kind of deep level plot. The surface level plot is like, this family's going to go try to buy a puppy. But that deep level plot is like the family's trying to stay safe and happy and you know, this woman's desperate. So there's like, that's the kind of yearning. She wants her family to be happy. She doesn't want her kids to have the life that that she has. So she makes some pretty questionable parenting choices. But for me, it was like the surface level plot is, oh, this guy's in prison. How's he going to get out? Or how's he going to, you know, how's he going to negotiate or navigate this space? He's the only Westerner in a prison, um, in a prison cell shared by 
um, seven other men who are all Chinese. And for a, a, a moment, for about a month, he pretends not to know Chinese, though his Chinese is excellent. So he's really kind of alienated from his brothers in the prison, right? And they're not his brothers. But the need, you know, the, the yearning that I discovered through, you know, pages and pages of writing was that, um, man, this guy has trouble with intimacy. He doesn't have a really good friend. He doesn't, you know, and he doesn't really know how to love. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he thinks he wants to be a great writer, but what's really ultimately more important for him is to be a storyteller surrounded by his brothers, these prisoners who become his brothers towards the end of the novel around a, an oil can fire. Like that's ultimately way more um, that yearning to be a storyteller, but not just a a writer with your name in creed lights, but a storyteller to a community of people. That's way more powerful and way more meaningful. And he had to, you know, that character had to learn that. Wow. That's powerful. That's, that's powerful. You know, I can't help but uh, think of the, uh, you know, the plots, you know, since we're talking about plots and since clearly you are uh, acknowledging, uh, maybe even channeling the works of Franz Kafka one of the things about Franz Kafka is, uh, well, in a lot of his novels, it's great novels like The Castle. Nothing happens. Absolutely nothing happens. There really <laughs> is no plot, but there's an initial right. there's an initial plot scenario. You know, K comes into town. I think yeah. it's is it K in in that novel or J? Yeah, K. Comes, uh, that's definitely in that's in the trial of K. Okay, um, Joseph K. I think his name is. Though the guy, mm-hmm. the guy in I forget the, the name of the character in in the castle, but he comes into town, the surveyor, trying to reach the castle. That's the initial plot thing. But after that, absolutely nothing, uh, <laughs> nothing really happens. And I tell my students when I teach a Kafka class, I love teaching Kafka class. Although I had an incredibly bad experience last about three semesters ago when I taught it, and I can go into that some other time if you're if you're interested. But uh, uh, you know, one of the things that I tell my students is. Don't expect anything to happen. Just look at the moment from moment to moment, because that's where Kafka's value is, is, is just being in the moment. And, uh, and so I'm wondering uh, how much of Kafka's novels and his very, very slow plot uh, did you have to fight against allowing too much of that, you know, and, or, or, I mean, how did, how did you, how did you negotiate that kind, that particular influence on this novel? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And because you're Daniel Chacon, you're my good old friend. Um, I'll just be completely honest. I think um, that's a negotiation process of to what extent am I going to draw on Kafka? I mean, obviously I've named it K. Um, I have a, you know, person who's, you know, alone and a writer and thinks he's a terrible writer and, but is actually a really good writer. There's all kinds of parallels. Um, so still to this day, I don't know whether I got that right or not. And, you know, it's hard when you are the, you're the author, you kind of do your best work. And, uh, so that's something I think about from time to time, but in the beginning, it was kind of, I I did some easy things. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go ahead and you know, give this character one sister, just like um, Gregor had in, um, in Metamorphosis. I'm going to give him an old, overbearing father, but that father's going to match much more like my father, my actual father. And I'm going to plot out the prison cell in the same um, map, or according to the same plot as um, 
the flat and the metamorphosis is three mm. kind of three modules. Now, no one's probably going to notice that. That kind of thing. You know, I did not notice it. You're right, and I know (laughs) that story very well. In fact, one of the things that I that I point out to my students when we're reading that story is indeed that map. But I didn't get it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's good that you didn't see that. There were probably other things that you saw, like you know, that maybe you thought maybe I went overboard. No, not Uh, at all. No. You Uh -uh. know, in terms, uh, that's good. and I think it's the funny thing too is I think I um, I think I overestimated probably the um, the popularity of of Kafka in the world. I mean, obviously the guy's a genius and stuff, but it's not like everyone's walking around thinking about the you know the the three module uh, structure of the the flat and metamorphosis and how that relates to the three parts of the story and all this. You know, that's that's uh, for us nerds to do. Right. Um, and in the in yeah. the in the post truth era, which we live in, where you know we are starting to question the whole validity of the idea of truth, and I don't just mean because of you know recent political activities. I mean neuroscience itself and consciousness. You know, we we understand now that truth comes from uh, a part of the brain that has absolutely nothing to do with truth, and we are entering into a post truth era. So so I would I would say that. You know, you accept as fact, well, you know, we know that Kafka was a genius, but no, we don't. Some people just don't believe that he was a genius. And, (laughs) you know, which which should liberate us because that gives us the opportunity to point out what was, in our opinion, genius about Kafka. And so that's what I want to ask you. What is genius about Kafka that was so intimidated, so intimidating uh, to... uh, uh, kind of compare your character and this situation with, uh, with his work. Mm, okay. Let me try to take that sort of one part at a time. I mean, if I think about genius, I think of, you know, uh, people like, you know, Charlie Parker on the saxophone player or Bill Monroe, the mandolin player. These are people that took an art form and they used the same tools that everyone else before them used. And they made a sound arguably hadn't been heard before. I mean, not, they didn't completely reinvented it, but they, they, they made something that, that really, really did sound different and yet, uh, yet also sounded familiar. So I think, you know, Kafka's stories, the way he imagined them, they really do seem to me wholly original, you know? And of course, you know, he was, he read a ton and he was a product of his environment. So, um, he, yeah, he may even tell you that he, they may seem less original to him or something, but anyway, so, there's that, like, how do you, you know, make up something, make up a, a genre of storytelling that no one else has done, you know, that's, that's intimidating. Um, but at the same time, there are things that are, you know, like, uh, that are just sort of common to the human experience, the idea of, okay, you're going to be, um, you're going to be thrown in prison for a reason that really isn't fair. <laughs> <laughs> that's just universal right, right. That, that like in your own heart of hearts you know this is not right by you know international standards it's not right but too bad you're there and there's nothing you can do about it hmm. and i think anybody can relate to that i mean and, and that's the cool thing about that word kafka asks it can mean so many things to different people it can mean you know intimidating bureaucracy to one person it can mean surrealism to another person it can mean fear to another it can mean overbearing father it can mean you know a justice system that is completely arbitrary and capricious, all this stuff. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think there's a fine line between, um, 
being inspired and having fun, you know, with your, um, you know, the people that you, the artists that you love and, and, and being an imitator. And I right. think you just have to be you know, aware not to be an imitator and just be honest with your own work. There, there's this uh, story that uh, Neruda tells uh, about being in Buenos Aires with Garcia Lorca. They were doing a reading together and afterwards there was a, there was a big party, but uh, before the reading, apparently they were reading poetry to each other. And Neruda, after hearing Garcia Lorca go on, says, stop, stop reading. You're influencing me too much. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I have a friend who says she, when she's writing, she doesn't read anybody because she's too worried about being influenced. And I'm like, screw that, man. I love like, I love it when I write a sentence and it just sounds a little bit like Beckett, but no one else knows that except me. And I think, you know, Oh, I, I love to be absorbed by, you know, that is I don't the, know what your take on that is. That is the wrong way to go, to not read others. That is, that is like, uh, uh, you know, a very naive notion. No, no, no disrespect to your friend. But I remember I was doing a <laughs> reading in, in Houston when my first book came out. And um, it was this writer who had a book out before me. And it was, you know, it was, I'm not going to say his name, but, um, you know, I, uh, bought his book and had him sign. And he goes to me, he goes, well, I would, I'm not going to buy your book because I don't read other writers. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, I just don't read. Otherwise I don't want them to influence my voice. And I'm, and I'm thinking, Oh my God, this guy is just clueless. Of course you want them to influence your voice. You know, you want them to influence your voice, not to, to the point to where you're writing what they're writing, but that you are writing as a discourse community. That's communication. And if you're I mean, only what? talking and not listening, then you're, you're not going to be a very, and you know what? He never came out with a second book. His first one well, wasn't that good. <laughs> his first one wasn't that good. Oh my gosh. I mean, there's this great scene and I forget which I mean, documentary about Bob Dylan is, but, but it's when he's a young man and he's basically borrowing slash stealing uh, albums from his uh, friend and he'd go and put these albums on, and he, and he, but Dylan says something like, "I had a, I had a very good ear. I could, I could remember things really well at that age in my life." So he put these records on, and he, just, he would like, boom! His his mind was like this trap, like the way he kind of explained it. And yeah, so he'd catch these things, and and he'd put them in there, and then yeah, it, it would come out Dylan, and Dylan is certainly one of those people that you know is considered unique. I hate that word, but. Um, you know, he's got his own sound, but how did he get there? Well, yeah, he listened to a hell of a lot of the people. And, and, and just to be clear, I do think there are times that a writer should avoid certain writers while he or she is working on a book. I think that, you know, the, 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 uh, advice that John Gardner gave in his seminal, uh, art of the novel book is very good advice. Don't read bad writing, period. Just don't read bad <laughs> writing unless a friend wrote it and is asking you to give him to, you know, to give some feedback. but don't read bad writing is number one. Cause if you read, uh, writing where the, the, you know, the, 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 the syntax is muddled or, you know, where there's no rhythm or where it's just monotonous, then that's going to influence you. And then the other thing I think you have to be careful of when you're writing a novel is don't read Faulkner. <laughs> Faulkner is a great writer, but you don't want to read him while you're working on a novel. Because we get back to the Neruda thing. Stop it. You're influencing me too much. Yeah, he does have, and he's he's got a unique voice. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think I went through that phase. 
for sure. And we, I think anyone, I mean, you knew me when I was young. Um, I definitely uh, was guilty of, of imitating a little bit, but hey, you know, so well, we was, all um, yeah. yeah, so it was uh, George Saunders who said he wanted to try to be like Kerouac and it made him yeah. really poor and he was living in a basement and then he was like, hmm, maybe I should sound like me yeah no <laughs> i think all of the me yeah. that we say sound like it's it's still, like we said it's still you know dylan's picking up stuff from you know the osborne brothers or something like that or you know right um, tony morrison read william faulkner like a lot there, and there's this uh also this um uh the the idea of the of mimetics right which is uh kind of like a linguistic and or cultural uh uh aspect of evolutionary theory that, you know, in evolution is the survival of the fittest. You know, it's, you know, we're all here to survive for, you know, procreation and, and to keep alive. And in mimetics, it's the survival of the most uh, imitatable. And so there's uh, linguistic memes mm. and there's imagistic memes. Like, for example, you know, the other day I was walking through my neighborhood and I saw this little wrought iron table with two wrought iron chairs on somebody's front porch. And I knew they never sat there. I knew that what they were doing was recreating a meme, something that they had seen and they want to recreate it. And the most powerful memes stay alive. Like, for example, one of the examples that Susan Blackmore gives, who wrote this book on um, uh, memes, is. Um, how in hotels, how they fold the little thing of toilet paper at the end so it's like a little arrow. There's absolutely yeah, yeah. no reason people need to do that, but it's just an imitation. You see it, and then it just kind of takes off on a life. So it's the survival of the most imitated. And wow. one, of, one of their arguments is that... Can I just stop you there just for a second, Danny? Uh -huh. And just say that I've seen that word like in critical articles, never understood it until now. But that's just that's the best explanation of mimetics or memes that I've ever heard. So please go on. Yeah, and we, we tend to associate them now with little funny things, but those are because they're shared so much and so that's the, the mimetic yeah. aspect of it. But there's there's an argument that human beings, what one of the things that makes us different from everybody else is our ability to imitate. And I look at my two-year-old daughter and I will say something like, uh, who is it? Or come in. And she'll say, who is it? Or come in without understanding even what it means. But her acquisition of language is essentially memes you know, what she, you know, uh, what she picks up. And, and I think that's just the way human beings work. So when we are reading other writers, because we're human, we are going to be influenced by them. And that's why I think it's important that you don't, not you, but you know, we don't read Faulkner when we're working on novels because we're human beings and we are, it's so powerful and such a, you know, a, a powerful way to, to, to put together syntax and to mix it in all that emotion uh, that, that it's just, you know, you're going to meme it. You're going to, you're going to copy it. And I think of Toni Morrison again, uh, she read Faulkner, but not when she's working on a novel, when she works on novels, she only read detective fiction. That was it, mm. which makes a mm. lot of sense because her like language, yeah, her, her, her language was so beautiful. Uh, she didn't want to be influenced by Faulkner, but she did want to be influenced in terms of plot. So she would read detective fiction every time she wrote a novel. But yeah, I mean, the point is, you know, that's you, our, that's, just like back to uh, that a good conversation about plot. I never knew that about uh, Morrison reading detective fiction. I, I know that she, yeah, did critical work on Absalom. Absalom, I think is what it was. Yeah. But yeah, cool. Yeah, and it, you know the thing is, you're not going to be able to not imitate those uh, uh, that that leave you with, you know, uh, uh, 
that leave you stunned. You know, even as a musician, I imagine you uh, at times when you're freestyling, you uh, you imitate that that mandolin player you were referring to earlier. Yeah, uh, yeah, Bill Monroe. Mm-hmm. So yeah. let me let's talk a yeah. little. Let's uh, change the subject a little bit here. Well, I guess, actually, I think it's going back to uh, the same subject. Um, when we were, I was in China, I went to Beijing and I visited you and I hung out with you and your family for a while. And we went to the Great Wall of China and it was really a, a wonderful outing, uh, a great day. But one of the things that we decided, we went to this little store, this little tiny independent store, you know, like a little shack right before yeah. you get to the wall. And, uh, and it just, I guess it just evoked our imagination so much. You said, hey, you know what? Let's each write a story about the wall. And, uh, and then we'll read yeah. each other's stories. I go, oh, that's a great idea. And I remember I wrote a story. I don't think I ever revised it or did anything with it. Did, did, that, story, it. did that story end up uh, being at all a part of this novel? It did not. It's a free, uh, not that I know of. I mean, I bet you I probably saved a, 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 an image or something from there. I'm trying to think if I did or not. But uh, I called it the store before the wall. And I can't remember if we both, decided it had to be the same title or something like that. But no, we no, we didn't. Called, yeah, this is the store before the wall. So I did write this kind of um, fantastic short um, piece that I haven't published yet because I probably need to work a little harder to get it out because I'm really terrible about submitting things. Um, anyway, <laughs> so what, there were cassia seeds in that, that book. I remember that. Um, and, excuse me, not that book, but in that, in that short story, um, you know, it was about an old, old lady who was like 600 years old, who had still been, who was working on, she'd been behind that store since before the wall um, began, before it started. So yeah, is that a Kafka influence? Probably, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the way, the kinds of stuff we, we look for. Um, and yeah, it was a, a fun little story, but I don't think it uh, ended up in, in the novel in any concrete way, but I think you know, the exercise of the mind, you know, that calisthenics we do every time we write, whether a story gets published or not, um, is always good for you. So it probably <laughs> got in there somehow. Yeah. I, I wrote my story, uh, but I don't think I, I think I left it. I, I bought this really cool notepad when I was in, in Beijing. You were talking about how you can buy these really cool uh, notepads. Yeah. I, I bought one and I wrote it in there, the first draft in there. I still have the notepad and I should go in and look at the story because I don't even remember anything about it except that the wall in the story wasn't the wall of China. It was the wall separating Ciudad Juarez from El Paso, Texas, where I live. That's all, oh, I, that's all I remember about it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. I hope you can find it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, if, if, if I'm compelled to go back to it, definitely. Ted O'Connell, congratulations on K, a novel. Can you tell us uh, uh, what you're going to be, what you're working on next? What's the next book that's going to, that, that you're going to publish? Well, I did start a novel this summer. That's exciting. Um, and it's called, and right now it's, I'm calling it 99 Balloons. And yes, that is a reference to the German band Nina. Oh, I remember um, that so song. I have, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that song. I'm a sucker yeah, for that song. Yeah, me too. Um, and and the weird thing is, uh, just to tell you real quick, that the basic um, plot of this of this book is that Trump gets reelected, and this young woman uh, who's living in near Billings, Montana, who's a musician, um, finds a dead hiker uh, who is a German national, um, and she steals her passport. And it's like, I'm going to get out of here. I'm, I got to go. I'm leaving the country. 
Um, so that's the kind of, you know, that's the big picture sweeping oh, you know, nice. story plot. Yeah. So she goes, she finds a way to get to Germany. But the funny thing is like, since, you know, the events of January 6th, I don't know that it's, I have to figure out what to do about that because I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to rewrite history to a point and imagine that Trump got reelected and okay. And imagine what that means. But, um, I'm definitely struggling now with like, I don't know if I can rewrite that history. That thing happened, you know? So I'm the, I think, you know, as you know, as a writer, a lot of writing is just problem solving. I don't know if that makes it seem less romantic than it is, but that's a problem I have to deal with. But I, I have faith that in that problem solving something, you know, perhaps even more interesting will, will come from that. But it's a, it's a nagging feeling like, oh crap, what am I going to do with this? Well, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, when they storm the Capitol, it becomes a heroic act in the eyes of, uh, you know, the alternate media and that alternate media becomes the more dominant, uh, you know, uh, voice in American media. And so it's actually, those are, those people are remembered as patriots, you know, um, I, I can't also help but think of Philip Roth, The Case Against America. I, I don't know if you've uh, re-entered that novel before, but... Uh, no, I haven't. I've read about three of his books, and I love him. I mean, he's really, really good, so I have not read that. Oh, I should check it out. Oh, the it's, it's, it's worthwhile, because it's what would happen if Lindbergh had become president. And as you know, Lindbergh was, uh, you know, yeah. fascist. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and, uh, and so it's, uh, it's really a, a, a wonderful... And also, I, I can't th- also think of, uh, I think of, Philip, uh, what is his name? Um, Philip K. Uh, Dick, I think his name is, um, the one who wrote uh, that novel, Man Inside, Man in the Iron Tower, which is about what it, mm. what would have happened in the U.S. if the if the Japanese and the and the Germans had won the war, what would America be like? Yeah! Wow! Cool. Those are uh, those are heavy hitters. I wonder if I can hang. I would read and my that. My daughter was just talking about Phil K. Dick um, last night or, or yesterday in the car. Yeah, the Man in High Tower—that's what it's called. It's also a, a okay. series now. But uh, but yeah, no, I would read that, Ted. I would love to to uh, imagine that world, but only imagine it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's really more like it's it's more a backdrop. It's 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 a it's much more uh, ultimately about this. Um, young woman's relationship with her with her mother and her her, her family her parents because the other thing she gets caught up in um because this is a very american book is the uh, her parents cheat on her a uh, cheat for her to get, try to get her into college so she feels very betrayed by that um, uh-huh. so she feels betrayed by her country betrayed by that um and so she's like screw you i'm gonna go find a new family in germany Wow. It sounds like it's going to be great. So I got to go to Germany next summer. I got an excuse to travel if I can get my shot. Oh, and uh, I'll meet you there, man. We'll, we'll hang out together and eat some good food and drink some, uh, some nice uh, Marzen. And then we'll go to the, another wall the Berlin wall and say, let's each write a story oh, dude. about the wall. And then one of us will lose it. That's it. We got to do it. We got to do it. <laughs> All right, Ted, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. I wish you the best of luck on that novel that you're working on. And uh, everybody listening, please read Kay. It's It's an amazing journey. And thank you for joining us. It's always good to talk to an old friend. Don't forget, buy Kay. A novel by Ted O'Connell. In fact, buy books every day, as soon as you can. Every time you get paid, walk into a bookstore, either virtual or literal, and buy books. We need you. I'm Daniel Chacon. Talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.